Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This week we discuss how the legal landscape for transgender individuals is driving more of them to Illinois. And we hear from a transgender school board member helping make a difference. Also, why fewer hospitals are investing in midwives. A shocking report on violence at a federal prison in northwest Illinois led to a special management unit's closure. But NPR has learned as changes were being proposed, some employees threatened prison officials. A central Illinois mayor talks about a tornado that decimated his community a decade ago and how recovery continues. We'll learn more about what farmers are doing to deal with climate change. And a longtime fixture behind the microphone, the voice of the Northern Illinois University Huskies, is retiring. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. Well, we just wrapped up National Transgender Awareness Week. And according to the Trans Legislation Tracker, 85 anti-trans bills were passed in state houses around the country this year. Many of them target youth, including access to gender-affirming health care for minors. Medical organizations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, support age-appropriate gender-affirming care. They say it can reduce adverse mental health outcomes and the risk of suicide among trans youth. Illinois Public Media's Kimberly Schofield spoke to reporter Owen Henderson about Illinois' efforts to protect trans rights. Owen, tell me a little bit about the current legislative landscape in the Midwest when it comes to trans rights. So there was a big wave of legislation around the country this spring, especially focusing on trans youth. Here's what went into law in the surrounding states just in 2023. Indiana, Iowa, and Kentucky all passed versions of a law like Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay Law, which bans instruction about human sexuality in any form before a certain age. Indiana and Iowa passed laws requiring schools to tell parents if a child requests to use a different name or pronoun at school. Iowa and Kentucky passed laws requiring students to use the bathroom of the sex they were assigned at birth. And Kentucky and Missouri both passed laws requiring students to play on sports teams that align with the sex they were assigned at birth. And now all four of these states, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, and Missouri, all of the states that surround Illinois except Wisconsin, have all banned gender-affirming health care for minors. I should say Indiana's ban is currently blocked by a court injunction. So on the legislative side, what is happening in Illinois? Illinois actually enshrined legal access to gender-affirming health care at the beginning of this year. It guarantees that in-state providers can't lose their licenses for providing care that is legal in the state of Illinois, even if that care is illegal elsewhere. What has the effect been like from all of this legislation on the ground for trans people in the Midwest? So this past April, Missouri's attorney general put out emergency rules that severely limited access to gender-affirming health care for everyone, unless they met some very stringent criteria. Those rules have since been pulled now that Missouri has banned gender-affirming health care for minors. But when those rules were first introduced, it shook a lot of trans Missourians up. Ezra Witcher was living in Springfield, Missouri, with his partner at the time. It was like, oh, okay, well, you're no longer welcome in the state. Um, get out now while you can uh, before the dust settles and you see how bad it is. Witcher and his partner decided to start looking for other states with more protections for trans residents. They took a road trip through Illinois to visit a few potential places to move, one of which was Champaign-Urbana driving around and seeing all the like pride flags and stickers, not just in downtown, but like everywhere was like, OK, I feel safe. 
Because they wanted to make sure Witcher continued to have access to his health care, the two decided that he should move to Illinois as soon as possible, without the two of them even having an apartment here. Witcher reached out on a Facebook group for the local trans community where he met Taryn Elam, who offered to let him stay in her guest room for free. I could not in good conscience just stand by and do nothing while, while somebody was moving into the area or trying to, and I've got the space. Witcher stayed with Elam for about six weeks before he and his partner were able to get into their apartment this summer. Now the two are settling into the community. Oh, wow. Is this story an anomaly? To put it bluntly, no. As more and more anti-trans legislation has been passed in state houses around the country, more and more trans adults and the parents of trans kids have been reaching out to organizers in Illinois to look into moving here. We've got other people who reach out by email or through social media or the phone and say, like, we're fleeing this particular state for this particular reason. Um, we are not safe or our family is not safe. And, you know, we identified this community as a place that we're going to be relocating to. Nicole Friedman with Uniting Pride of Champaign County has been getting a lot of those messages. She says that with the big increase in demand that they've seen, she wants the Illinois government to devote more resources to this issue. I wish our state legislators would recognize the level of the state of emergency we're in and would give it the weight that they give to other areas of emergency. So moving forward, what are advocates pushing for in Illinois when it comes to trans rights? There are three bills that Equality Illinois is currently pushing for. One would require trainings on cultural competency in healthcare so that providers who aren't from marginalized communities, like the trans community, are better equipped to treat the patients who are. Another would make things easier for businesses and universities to create gender-neutral multiple occupancy restrooms if they want to do so. The last one would provide funding for schools that are working on implementing the age-appropriate and inclusive health education in public schools that's currently required under Illinois law. Owen Henderson, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. I'm Kimberly Schofield. Alana Banks made history two years ago, becoming the first black and transgender woman elected to a school board in the country. And that matters to trans people within her central Illinois school district. Zelda Tyndall is trans and an assistant teacher at MacArthur High School in Decatur. I am absolutely overjoyed to know that we have somebody on the school board that's fighting for us. Banks also helped appoint a new superintendent for Decatur Public Schools and negotiated a contract that raised wages for assistant teachers. Still balancing the demands of the communities she represents hasn't been easy. Emily Hayes has more on her story. So this is our cafeteria. This is mainly for like uh, seniors. Uh They come here and they have lunch. I met Alana Banks at her day job at a large social service organization. She's only 28, but in her off hours she serves on the school board and is starting a shelter for queer youth. She didn't transition until she was 22 and identified as a gay boy while in school. There have been many situations where I felt, you know, outed by administrators or felt, you know, just unsafe, even though even walking to class, to and from class. She never knew what peers would say to her, and now she wants to be the hope for current students like her. There is the light at the end of the tunnel for students who are struggling with these issues. Despite her election making national news in 2021, Banks has not received any hate mail. Instead, she says the hardest part of her term has been doing enough for the communities she represents. Because a part of my campaign, when I first started, everyone assumed that I was just going to primarily work with black issues or queer issues. And so 
those two communities, actually, I wish that I could do more <laughs> work for. Um, there's just been a whole whirlwind of other things that we've had to um, focus our attention on. Like relocating students over the summer when two school buildings in the district were found to be structurally unsound. And that has led to frustration from some in the LGBTQ plus community who feel their issues aren't being addressed quickly enough. To explain to folks that, you know, it, unfortunately in this political climate, you know, nothing happens overnight. Um, all of the change, whether it's progressive or not, um, takes a while to actually be tangible. So um, that's kind of the hardest part. The leaders of black youth groups are also reaching out for help. They come to me in that I am African-American and that I should be able to articulate their interests and concerns and things like that. But they struggle with me, my identity. <laughs> Those groups are often organized by the same black churches Banks grew up in. She says they often have an implicit don't ask, don't tell policy about being gay or lesbian and are more hostile to trans people. She often has to fight stereotypes that black trans women are uneducated, have a mental illness, or are sex workers. I'm none of those things. I'm actually a professional. I'm working on my degree. I make my own money. I, you know, I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. Um, and I think for them to see that, for the community at large to see that, to witness that, that trans people are just as normal as everyone else, um, it's a, it's a, it's an adjustment, I guess. Um, but again, being the optimist that I am, I always feel that, you know, it won't always be this way. In those hard moments, Banks relies on her social circle, including the superintendent and board secretary, who she's known since she was a child. Um, our board president is also really great um, at listening. <laughs> um, I can always call on someone if I just need to decompress or, or vent about it. Um, but other than that, I just, I just tell myself, I'm, a, I'm naturally an optimistic person, so I just tell myself, you know, this too will pass, and I, well, tomorrow's a new day. <laughs> so I think it's just, just having that optimistic energy about myself is just, that's the best I can do right now. Alana Banks' term on the Decatur Public School Board ends in 2025, and she's already planning to run again. I'm Emily Hayes. Last year, black drivers were the subjects of 30% of traffic stops in Illinois. That's almost double the percentage it was nearly two decades ago. And according to an investigation by WBEZ and the Investigative Project on Race and Equity, many black drivers are left questioning if a routine run to the store or picking up their child from school could lead to being stopped by police. Michael Liptrot shares some of their stories and how some are fighting racial profiling in Illinois. On a Saturday morning in September, I set out for the west side of Chicago to the Austin neighborhood. As I approached the intersection of Madison and Laramie, I saw a police traffic stop taking place. It was just past 11 a.m. Two officers speaking with a black woman in a cream-colored Chevy Impala. Within minutes, another stop happened. A different pair of officers pulled over two black men in a dark-colored sedan. Before I could tell the make and model, the stop was over. In the roughly 25 minutes I sat in the area, I saw five stops either at the intersection of Madison and Laramie or a block away. All but one was over as fast as it started, with no visible ticket being given to the drivers. This intersection specifically is known for police traffic stops. At least that's what people told me at the nearby car wash. I went to a Buddy Bear car wash where it's packed with cars, mostly black and Latino drivers wiping down their rides to start the weekend. It's here I meet Edward Robinson. As he's wiping down his green Mini Cooper, Robinson tells me about being stopped the previous day as he picked his son up from school. He's dealt with police stopping him for years. They want to immediately search the car. You, know, you find no gun and then you let me go. 
right? No real purpose for the traffic stop. Bernie Dockery has also felt targeted by police. He is from North Lawndale and sees stops regularly on his commute through Austin. I see them every morning. When I come on my way to work, they have at least four to five people pulled over every morning. Larry Perry lives in the area and also regularly sees stops in the area. He recounts being stopped nearby at Independence and Roosevelt. They said it was because my windows were tinted. After they saw that, they supposedly took my driver's license and ran a check, but I know they didn't run a check. They just wanted to look in the back of my car, and they let me go. Over half the stops of black drivers across the state were for non-moving violations, such as talking on the phone, not wearing a seatbelt, or driving with an expired tag. The number of black drivers let go with the warning from a non-moving violation in 2022 was five times more than it was in 2004. Many are asking what these stops mean. The ACLU of Illinois alleges these traffic stops aren't really about traffic, but rather police abusing their power and violating the civil rights of black and Latino drivers. Attorney Joshua Levin says these stops are a pretext for something else. The officer's true reason is to engage in a fishing expedition based largely on racial stereotypes, false racial stereotypes, that black and Latino drivers are more likely to have something criminal going on in their car. These pretextual stops are the focus of an ACLU of Illinois lawsuit filed this summer against the Chicago Police Department. Levin says the plaintiffs use different routes for daily activities, like going to work, visiting loved ones, or picking up a child from school, just to escape potentially being stopped by police. Craig Futterman is the director of the UChicago Civil Rights and Police Accountability Board and sees these disparities in traffic stops. This echoes a familiar procedure of stopping mass numbers of minorities in search of illegal items. Chicago moved then from a racist strategy of stopping and frisking people on the street to an equally racist strategy of substituting car stops for traffic stops and targeting black and brown communities, particularly targeting folks on the south and west sides. Throughout our reporting, WBEZ and the Investigative Project on Race and Equity contacted numerous government agencies about our findings. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson issued a statement offering his dismay about the continuation of such disparities across the city, particularly in his Austin community. He wants the Chicago Police Department to study the disparities, be more transparent about its traffic stop policies, and implement fair policing models. State Rep. LaShawn Ford also says studying the data can help lawmakers determine when strategies to fight racial profiling are having the desired positive effect. Many times we pass public policy and we just leave it and we leave it to the agencies that's supposed to carry it out. Now, believe it or not, we're going to be able to point to your work and say, look, what did you guys do? How did you do it? And then we could provide incentive for police forces to do the right thing. Ford is doing his part to help reduce pretextual stops in hopes of repairing the damage he says they've caused in the relationship between communities of color and law enforcement. Ford and Illinois Secretary of State Alexei Janulius introduced legislation in February to end the practice of police stopping motorists for items hanging from their rearview mirror, such as air fresheners. The bill was signed into law in June. Long before the state started collecting traffic stop data, David Lowry has been fighting racial profiling where he lives in southwest suburban Evergreen Park. There's the police station right there. Lowry is the CEO of the Living and Driving While Black Foundation. I went on a ride-along with Lowry through areas where he has both witnessed and experienced traffic stops in the village. First, we rode down Ketsy. 
The Evergreen Park Police Station is just down the street where Lowry routinely sees officers making traffic stops. In this area between Kidzy and 95th was a lot of stops was made right through here. Soon we get to a nearby mall where Lowry often sees black motorists being stopped both coming to and leaving the mall. Uh, and that's how the technique that they were using. His experiences and hearing the experiences of others led him to start his foundation, which reviews racial profiling complaints, provides legal referrals, and educates drivers on their constitutional rights. We started doing our own investigations because I wanted to prove that racial profiling in Evergreen Park is a habit that officers use to try to find other things besides a broken taillight or a fading turn signal. They were looking for either drugs or guns or whatever, but it was never about a traffic stop. Laws intended to address racial profiling through data collection have helped reveal the glaring disparities, but very deliberate steps have to be taken to address those inequities. While some offer platitudes about racial profiling, Lowry and others are actually seeking justice and fighting for reform. Michael Liptrot, WBEZ News. There's more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Swedish Hospital this summer laid off some midwives while others quit as the medical center made big changes. Many pregnant patients were outraged. In some cases, they had long headed to Swedish just for the hands-on care midwives are known for. Research shows midwives could help reduce the maternal mortality rate gripping the nation while increasing choices for patients. And yet hospitals across the Chicago area aren't investing in midwives much or at all. Kristen Schorsch brings us the story. It's about 5 o'clock on a weekday, and Autumn Murdoch, who was 36 weeks pregnant, arrives at a regular group meeting with other pregnant people due around the same time. This is her first baby. She's having a boy. And she's a little nervous. Tall and athletic, Murdoch sinks into a circle of comfy chairs. Right now I'm feeling okay. Like, it's been a smooth pregnancy really up until the end. Like, I was telling um, her that, like... At the end, it's hard to get sleep now. Like, you have to be conscious of how you turn because, like, you don't want to just turn too quick. The room is cozy, not sterile like a doctor's office. Murdoch is here to see her group of black midwives. In Illinois, a midwife is a nurse who has an advanced degree. They can manage a person's entire pregnancy and deliver their baby. And today, Murdoch meets SJ for the first time. SJ is a doula who plans to visit Murdoch for months after she gives birth. They chat about everything from taking a childbirth class. They'll go through like breathing techniques, they'll go through positioning, they'll go to how to bond with her baby and encourage breastfeeding right after delivering him. So, you know, like some things that you can request um, are like, you know, immediate skin to skin with baby, like as long as as long as their heart rate and breathing's doing okay. The focus of this midwife group is to try to stop so many pregnant black people from dying before and after childbirth. They do that by building trust with these mothers listening to and believing their concerns. Historically, that hasn't been the case. Yet despite research that shows midwives tend to have low C-section rates and better outcomes for both parent and child, WBEZ found that many hospitals across the Chicago area are not investing in midwives, or they're cutting back. The void deepens depending on where you live. It's particularly stark on Chicago's south side. Several hospitals declined to explain why, 
but midwives, healthcare advocates, and other medical professionals? Told WBEZ it comes down to this. Many hospitals don't value midwifery. Births can take longer with midwives, and some say hospitals don't pay them enough. Carrie Stewart is a midwife in Chicago. Autumn Murdoch is one of her patients. As we know, midwives are more hand-on, less invasive, and so those births may take a little bit more time, therefore holding up you know, usage of more of those rooms. And it's really the concept of midwifery and really investing in midwifery and the care that patients are really looking for. Some say the lack of midwives at hospitals is about money, that a cascade of interventions can happen with OBs, ultimately leading to some unnecessary C-sections. But that major surgery brings in more money. Still, even if hospitals wanted to bring on more midwives, it's not that easy. Leslie Sanchez underscores part of the problem. She's a midwife, but she's also a nurse with a doctorate degree. She says she makes more money working at a hospital as a nurse, helping doctors deliver babies that she could deliver herself. I think first is pay, to be honest, and then second, the schedule's awful. For a lot of my colleagues, they work over 60 hours sometimes. While generations of midwives trained for this as a calling, others want more work-life balance. For all the struggles to get midwives in hospitals, patients who have experienced their care are a devout bunch. They tout how much they felt seen and heard, that they had a say in how they would bring a child into this world instead of being told what to do. Midwives are trained that birth is a normal process, not to intervene unless it's medically necessary. Take Lizzie Bortoto. When she was pregnant with her son, her midwives led a support group for parents. Their babies were due around the same time. They were building a relationship with me and building trust. I felt like all my concerns were listened to and validated. They believed me. And that's so sad that that's like an outlier in like a woman's experience in general and especially in healthcare. Bortoto says the midwives created a sense of community and she felt empowered and educated about what could happen when it came time to deliver. That support carried over to when Bortoto went into labor. Her son was born a little blue. The cord was wrapped around his neck. Specialists rushed in to make sure her baby boy was okay. But I just remember that the midwives, they were only focused on me. They were like my advocates there from start to finish. But there's a reality here. Some hospitals are still struggling financially coming out of the pandemic. They are looking for ways to bring in more money. And that might not be the midwifery model. Back at Stewart's prenatal group, Autumn Murdoch says she didn't know what a midwife was until she was placed with Stewart and her midwife team. Now, she says they're like family. Being comfortable is the most important part for me during this whole process. And this program has brought that and more. Like being able to be in a group with other moms that are at the same time. It's just like an energy that you get being here rather than just like doing it solo on your own. As our session wraps up, Murdoch stands up and forms a circle with a few others. They close their eyes, breathe in, breathe out, and they say an affirmation. I am excited to meet my baby. And I know that's true for you. <laughs> Kristen Schorsch, WBEC News. Well, drivers are experiencing some relief at the gas pumps as the Thanksgiving weekend is upon us. Gas Buddy fuel analyst Patrick DeHaan says national gas prices have been dropping for nine straight weeks. That's the longest streak since the summer of last year. 
down about three cents in the last week and more significantly down about 60 cents from a year ago. So as millions of Americans hit the road for Thanksgiving, uh, we've been greeted with falling prices. And Dahan says the price could fall another 5 to 15 cents by Christmas unless OPEC decides to cut oil production. Dahan says 41 percent of respondents to their Thanksgiving travel survey were hitting the road this weekend. That is the highest number since 2019. The special management unit at the federal prison in Thompson in northwest Illinois was one of the most violent prisons in the country. NPR and the Marshall Project first exposed the abuse of prisoners there last year. And in February, officials at the U.S. Bureau of Prisons concluded the unit could not be fixed and shut it down. Now prison officials say things were as bad as reported and worse. When they tried to make change, they even faced a death plot with some of their own staff. Here's NPR's investigative correspondent, Joseph Shapiro. Egregious inmate abuse, the worst he'd ever seen in his 31 years in corrections. That's how Warden Thomas Bergami described what he found at Thompson. He was sent there in March of 2022 to fix things. But he says often corrections officers resisted his directives to quit abusing prisoners. He ordered them to stop putting prisoners in handcuffs and restraints for hours and days, so tight and for so long that men were left with permanent scars, what they called their Thompson tattoos. Bergami told us of white guards using racial slurs and writing up false charges against black prisoners, that when he tried to hold staff accountable, he says the staff union went to war, falsifying and hyping problems at the prison and complaining to the local media. Your top story at 10, calls for help are growing inside USP Thompson. Thomas Bergami has only been the warden at USP Thompson for about four months. But the staff union is calling for his immediate removal. Bergami says his superiors at the Federal Bureau of Prisons were afraid of bad publicity and that they failed to back him up. Bergami retired recently. He spoke freely, but he didn't want his voice on tape. NPR and the Marshall Project found backing for his version of events in 200 pages of official documents, in interviews with several current and former Thompson staff, even union members, and senior officials like Associate Warden Denny Whitmore. It says on top, this is an emergency issue. Please help. And it's dated December 21st and 22nd. Given to Whitmore reads a handwritten letter. It it's an it urgent fine. warning to the warden, signed last December by 14 prisoners. They reported that corrections officers were recruiting prisoners, promising favors to ones who would physically attack the warden. Each individual inmate who have signed this document all testify that they have had encounters with many officers who have offered extra materials, food, trays, and privileges to verbally and physically assault Warden Bergami. The Bureau of Prisons investigated, but the investigator's report was short and dismissive. The investigator says he interviewed prisoners who signed the letter, that their stories were consistent, but because they wouldn't or couldn't tell the investigator the time and day the guards talked to them, the investigator says he can't check out their story. As a result, quote, this investigator could not confirm nor refute the allegations of the inmates. Damon Jackson has no doubt that the threat was real.
man, them guards, man, they, they vicious. Jackson was one of the prisoners who, at personal risk, signed the warning letter. The officers, they openly talk trash about the war, and they want them out the way. They openly talk about it like it ain't no secret. They wanted to continue doing what they were doing in the war and weren't going for it, so they was trying to get them out of the way so they could continue beating inmates and running the prison how they wanted to run it. And I felt terrible for Warden Bergami. Denny Whitmore, the associate warden. His head's probably spinning like, wait a minute, Mike, there's a threat against my life and there's, there's staff conspiring to, to have inmates uh, seriously assault me or try to kill me? And then to find out the staff are put back on their posts within like a three- to five-day period? It, you know, it just, uh, it screams of unsafe. Whitmore and Bergami were two experienced wardens sent to Thompson by the Bureau of Prisons to correct things. Right away, they ran into resistance. Black shirt mafia. Black shirt mafia. That's what he says a large group of corrections officers and other staffers called themselves the black shirt mafia. Instead of wearing their uniforms, they came to work in black T-shirts, and they didn't wear their name tags. It was a sign to the prisoners and to the wardens that the guards could do what they wanted. Some wore T-shirts with white skulls, the logo of the Punisher, the Marvel Comics vigilante. Marvel retired the logo after it was appropriated by far-right groups and worn by some of the January 6th rioters. Bergami and Whitmore quickly issued a directive. Staff needed to wear their official prison uniforms. The wardens say the union complained to their boss at the Bureau of Prisons, the regional director who then reversed the order and said it was okay for staff to wear black T-shirts and hoodies, but only with the union's logo. It totally diminished our authority. It totally undermined whatever we were trying to do there. It was one of many times they say officials at the agency sided with the union and the guards. There was one that pulled an inmate out of a cell and then swung him around and smashed the inmate's face off the wall. The BOP told us it responds to abuse allegations with, quote, rigorous investigations and decisive action. But the wardens say BOP officials ordered guards who faced repeated accusations to be reinstated. Union leaders deny the accusations of the wardens. They say it was the wardens who created problems and failed to protect the safety of prison staff. Brian Mueller is an officer for the National Council of Prison Locals. Union and management, it's a partnership. It's a give and take. This is a situation at Thompson where obviously it's well documented that management and, and labor did not get along. This summer, Bergami retired from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Whitmore, too. Both believe their path to promotion was now blocked. These were wardens who, just last year, were considered so skilled that they were sent to correct a bad prison. After the Bureau of Prisons shut down the special management unit in February and moved the inmates to other prisons, it expanded a low-security prison at Thompson. What happened was they closed it and they reopened the same building, and they had the same officers there. Topeka Sam is a prison advocate whose fiancé is a prisoner at that low-security facility. We talked to multiple family members of men who are there now. They say the brutal treatment of prisoners continues. So they may have moved the other population. They have a new population there, but it's the same officers there. So you didn't change anything. In September, the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Colette Peters, was called to Capitol Hill for an oversight hearing. The first thing she got asked... So let me talk about Thompson for a minute. ...was about her decision to shut down the unit at Thompson. Thank you, Senator. I, I don't know how an institution gets to that 
low, low point. Um, as you said, the warden reported he hadn't seen anything like that in his career. I, too, hadn't seen anything like that in my 30-plus year career in corrections and law enforcement. Far from Capitol Hill, former warden Thomas Bergami watched. He told us he felt validated by what she said. Director Peters took over last year as a reformer. Bergami felt allied with her, but that people under her resisted change. At that hearing, Peters cautioned it would take time to turn the culture at the Illinois prison. There's been retraining of staff, and the director said guards who were found responsible for abusing prisoners would be held accountable. But so far, no staffer has been fired for the damaging abuse at Thompson. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. Meanwhile, the head of the union at the Thompson prison says the recent NPR story is misleading and incomplete. Michelle O'Neill has more. John Zemker is the president of Local 4070 of the American Federation of Government Employees. He represents about 450 union workers at Thompson. NPR's Joseph Shapiro wrote the article with a reporter from the Marshall Project. The headline is, A Warden Tried to Fix an Abusive Federal Prison, He Faced Death Threats. Zumker says prisoners are the source of the alleged death threats. That's a common occurrence that happens in a prison. When staff do their job, inmates will complain and try to get those good staff removed from doing their job. That's the case here, where the inmates complained to the warden that, hey, you know, these staff want to kill you. So what did the warden do? He removed the staff, you know, on that. Again, there wasn't any evidence. It was investigated. And after it was investigated, there was no evidence. In February, more than 700 maximum security prisoners were transferred from Thompson to other federal prisons. Then the Bureau of Prisons converted Thompson to a lower security facility. Thomas Bergamy called after he read what Union President John Zumker told us an NPR article left out. Bergamy says evidence that members of Thompson prison staff threatened his life is detailed in a handwritten letter inmates sent to him. The former warden says the threats were not properly investigated and staff who had been temporarily removed from their posts went back to work after a few days. Bergamy says he decided to leave after the Bureau of Prisons North Central Regional Director Andrew Matavosian and his deputy told him to grin and bear it. Bergamy won't let us use his voice on the air, but we can quote him. Quote, I filed a whistleblower complaint because my own supervisors would support what Zumker was doing with his black shirt mafia and his staff that were abusing inmates just like you read in that NPR story. That was all true. Continuing to quote Bergamy, but I blame it ultimately on the regional director for not allowing us to hold Zumker accountable and all those staff. Unquote. I'm Michelle O'Neill. An Illinois community still recovering from a tornado a decade ago. That's ahead on Statewide. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. It's been 10 years since an EF4 tornado touched down in central Illinois. Washington, the hardest hit community by that unusual November storm system. Colin Shope sat down with the Washington mayor, Gary Manier, to reflect on the continuous process of recovery. It was amazing to me that, uh, you know, I, I didn't experience losing my house. Uh, we were about two blocks from uh, 
the actual debris and uh, the what I call the zone. And I, I just couldn't imagine as I walked uh, on a Tuesday afterwards was the first day we allowed people to get back into their uh, neighborhoods to try to claim uh, any source of you know memories, uh, whether it was DVDs uh, from weddings or uh, family videos or jewelry or wedding pictures, whatever it was. Uh, we walked through, uh, and I was actually on Hampton Road in Devonshire, and to the person, uh, everybody that would you know gave you a great hug and. And I said, man, I feel so bad, and this is so sorry. And they said, Mayor, don't worry. We have each other, and it's just stuff. And I'm thinking, I heard that over and over again. And, you know, we talk, talk about it's our stuff, but it's, it's our life that has now gone. And uh, all those memories are, are long gone, uh, but they had each other, and uh, that's what they hung on to. And the resilience of this community is just amazing because uh, how quickly they began to rebuild. And, uh, you know, we made sure that we heard from Joplin, Missouri. Uh, Mark Rohr, who wrote a book, uh, uh, told us uh, on that Wednesday we had a phone conference that Mayor Artis uh, uh, organized for me. And the first thing he kept saying is, you got to get rid of the debris. If the debris's in the way, uh, you can't recover. And uh, so we took that to heart, and obviously being a winter uh, storm like we had, uh, we knew winter was coming. Obviously that evening we had uh, snow showers, uh, sleet, rain, uh, 56 inches of snow followed that winter. Um, so we just continued to work hard to try to get that debris out of the way and had plenty of help uh, from all different agencies. It was fantastic. Could you just talk a little bit about the challenge of, of trying to manage this recovery? The amazing thing for, for us was uh, uh, our public works and all the public works of uh, the townships uh, that came to our rescue and the different surrounding communities and Caterpillar supplying uh, all kinds of equipment for us. Uh, I, I remember when Doug Oberhelman, uh, the CEO of Caterpillar at the time, came to visit and uh, on the Friday afterwards, and he counted about 40 pieces of Caterpillar equipment helping uh, clean up uh, the debris away from people's homes and uh, just t trying to get things out of the way. But our, you know, FEMA only allows you three days to get the streets open, and uh, that's all they're going to pay you for. And uh, we, we chose to continue to do it all but Thanksgiving Day. We, we went about 38 straight days picking up debris. And if, if people got it to the curbside, uh, whether it was a whole house, if their contractor could get the whole house uh, that was left of it to the street, we took it. Is it still difficult for people in the community, you feel, to have conversations about the tornado sometimes? I, I think it can be healthy to talk about it, and then others uh, get a little squeamish, uh, like when the skies get dark and the wind picks up, and uh, uh, even the tornado sirens, uh, if they uh, ha happen to si uh, sound off, I think people get a little nervous uh, and, and start looking and pay attention and probably uh, go to the basement and do what they're supposed to do. So uh, it it's probably never going to be the same. Uh, even when we do the two, first Tuesday of the month, the sirens, I'm sure uh, some people still uh, get a little bit of anxiety. And uh, obviously, you know, the, the, we've talked a couple of times about the, the, the strength in the community itself. In fact, the, the slogan, right, the Washington Strong, as I understand it, originated at this period. Um, and I mean, you see it everywhere. I saw it on a sign driving in today. It's right there on the plaque behind you. Um, what, what does Washington Strong mean to you today, 10 years later? It's interesting because when Roger Holzhauer and I from Teamworks talked about uh, they want to do something to uh, uh, give us some strength, and uh, they talked about making some T-shirts, and, uh, and he said, what about Washington Strong? And uh, uh, I think it just gives you a symbol of something to lean on, and uh, it does make us strong. And uh, the band Chicago, uh, 
when they pl- came to play in February, uh, they talked about, uh, you know, feeling stronger every day uh, as one of their songs, and uh, they kind of played off that, and uh, actually somebody threw a Washington Strong shirt uh, to the drummer, and he, he put it on during the concert, and uh, so I, I think it just symbolized uh, something to give us uh, hope and uh, strong stronger reach in every day, and uh, I think it's a... Uh, we're stronger for it, and I think we'll uh, continue to use that uh, Washington Strong uh, slogan. Do you remember if you could kind of estimate how long it took until you felt confident, you know, we're kind of firmly on the path back to normal again? Weeks? Months? Yeah, I, I don't think it'll ever be normal. Uh, that's that's kind of a, a tough thing to say. Uh, I think it was probably a couple years before I got to, to the comfort level that people were really going to stay and rebuild and uh, but it's just amazing. I think there was only five lots that weren't uh, rebuilt on. Most of those were purchased by their neighbors or split uh, the property to make their yards a little bit bigger. Uh, so it, it, I always say maybe it's the type of community we were before the disaster that helped us get through it and help us to uh, start a recovery. Colin Shope speaking with the Washington Mayor, Gary Manier, 10 years after a tornado did nearly a billion dollars worth of damage to his city. Well, after 44 years as the voice of the Huskies, Northern Illinois University football and basketball broadcaster Bill Baker is retiring. Peter Medlin took a trip up to the press box at Husky Stadium to talk to him about his storied career behind the microphone. Bill Baker has broadcast his fair share of incredible endings. He's broadcast bowl game victories, MAC championships, game-winning shots. Last second field goals. There's the snap, the placement, the kick is on the way, and the kick is good! Back champions! And, of course, maybe his most famous NIU call, the wild ending of a 63-60 thriller in Toledo. on his feet, taken out of bounds! Goodbye, Toledo! Goodbye, Toledo! They're done! Huskies win it! But the only ending Baker's thinking about right now is his last call. How will the game end? Will NIU win? And when the buzzer sounds, how will he say goodbye to the Husky faithful before taking off the headset for the last time? Really, that's the only thing left on my to-do list is figure out exactly how I want to leave. One of the reasons he's so fascinated by the end is that his illustrious NIU play-by-play career started with a bang. It's September 1980, his first ever Northern Illinois football game, his first ever play. Long Beach State kicks off and the Huskies take it back 97 yards for a touchdown. The guy that I was working with, Pat Carey was his name, you know, he just sat there, looked at me with his mouth open, and we went to a break, you know, right away, and, and he just he shook his head, he says, I can't believe that. Then I got, yeah, you know what? That's a tough one to beat. Your very first Division I call, that is a tough one to beat. Since then, Baker's announced thousands of games for NIU, from football to men's and women's basketball, soccer, baseball, softball, and more. He's called over 500 football games and only ever missed one. A massive part of the broadcast has been Baker's partnership with his analyst, Mark Lindo. They've been a duo for the past 39 years, and Baker says they're the longest-running broadcast team in Division I college football. He's inside of my mind, and I'm inside of his mind. We both know what the other guy's going to say you know, before it ever happens. And when he thinks about what he'll really miss when he steps away, it'll be the relationships he's built with colleagues like Mark and Andy Garcia, who he's happy to be handing the mic over to after this year. Relationships both on and off air and watching their families grow up. 
not going to be going everywhere. It, it's not going to be Toledo. It, it's going to be dealing with these guys, traveling with these guys, and eating with these guys, and kibitzing, and and we don't smoke the cigars anymore. We gave those up. But uh, yeah, that, that's that's going to be the biggest thing. But it can be a demanding job. A late game in Washington with a red-eye home for a game in DeKalb the next day. He's been traveling through Thanksgiving and on the road for Christmas and New Year's. It's a commitment and sometimes a sacrifice. I missed a few sporting events. Both of my girls uh, played uh, tennis in high school. My uh, older daughter played uh, softball. Got to see a lot of them. Missed a lot on weekends when I had to be someplace. Missed weddings, you know, in the families. and Missed funerals. Missed a couple. Yeah, I mean, it, and it helps to have a, a family that, that understood. He and his wife, Karen, have been married for 50 years, and she likes to joke that he had a microphone in his hand when they met. And she's even gotten to travel with Bill this fall for his last season. And a lot has changed in the past 44 years in sports and technology. Baker's not only the play-by-play man, he also does the engineering work behind the scenes. He remembers long before the internet the dry pair system of getting the broadcast on air when you're states away from your station. He remembers someone from Sports Information slipping them a piece of paper with basic team stats during timeouts. Nowadays, I've got an iPad. It sits right in front of me. And anything I need to know about, number one, the game, number two, the, the players in the game, what they're doing in the game, and what the, these players have done historically is at the tip of my finger. Baker doesn't know exactly how he got the radio bug. He loved listening to Cubs announcer Jack Quinlan as a kid, and in high school at Lane Tech in Chicago, he asked if he could record their football games. I asked him, hey, could we maybe tape the, the games and play them back in the lunchroom? Surprisingly, they said yes, and we did, and they did. Now, the only trouble with that was there were four or 500 kids eating lunch at the same time, and you couldn't hear those games. In college in the late 60s, he got paid to broadcast sports for the first time. His first call was a sophomore football game between St. Charles and Naperville for WGSB. He never remembers being nervous to be live on air, even back then. Baker served four years in the Air Force before beginning his career calling high school sports and eventually landing at NIU. It's a lifetime. 44 years is a lifetime. And uh, you feel honored, uh, awfully lucky. You feel blessed being able to do this for as long as I did it. No matter how Baker's final game ends, it'll be special. That's whether it's a last-second touchdown or a two-yard gain, because the moment demands it. And for the past 44 years, Bill Baker has been the one bringing gravity to those moments, to countless memories that'll live forever for Husky sports fans. I'm Peter Mudlin. A sweeping new report from the Biden administration warns that the Midwest is getting hotter and wetter, and these extreme weather changes pose an immediate threat to Illinois farms. But for farmers, conservation measures can be expensive, and the results aren't always readily obvious. Contributor Zach Noth recently visited two corn and soybean farms in central Illinois that are experimenting with some new practices. And Zach, Illinois farms don't look like they used to. Tell us what you learned when you began traveling to central Illinois to talk to farmers. Well, to the eye, they might look no different, but there are many changes behind the scenes. First of all, Illinois farms are much bigger than they used to be. Uh, they've consolidated about and cut in half the number of farmers that are out there. Um, it's still farmed by families who live on the land for the most part, but they farm much bigger acreage. And the reason is, is because there are a lot of out-of-state and absentee owners. 
Another big change that I noticed is that the equipment is huge and it's very high tech. A combine uh, to collect corn and soybeans might cost up to a million dollars. And some of these vehicles almost drive themselves. They can measure the moisture of the soil uh, and they can operate on GPS. And, and you actually spent time on two Illinois corn and soybean farms where the owners are adopting some conservation measures. Tell us what they're doing. I think the most visible thing that listeners might notice as they drive down the highway through central Illinois is grass waterways. So they look like roads that almost go through the cornfields and the bean fields. They look like little highways. They planted grass in an area where the water can collect and it can run through the fields without taking tons and tons of soil with it. Another thing people might notice is cover crops. So normally during the winter months, uh, the soil is bare. There aren't any crops growing there. A lot of farmers are starting to plant cover crops to hold that soil in place, harder for the wind to blow it away and harder for the rain to wash it away. And then using some of the higher tech available, the, mach the new machinery, they can actually do a lot less plowing in the fields and they can really apply their fertilizer in a much more precise way using quite a bit less, which saves them money too. You know, farmers say they're under a lot of pressure, and some say it can be financially risky to adopt some smart farming practices. What made these farmers that you talked to more inclined to experiment? Well, the two farmers that I talked to, they live and farm on the land that they farm. So they see the droughts that occur. They see the torrential rains when they come, and they watch their own soil disappear. So they have a direct incentive in trying to preserve and conserve the natural resources. The Biden administration wants to actually pay farmers to adopt more smart climate practices. What do the farmers say about that? Well, they're all for it. Uh, but I think adoption is going to be a slow process because farmers listen to other farmers. And the Illinois Farm Bureau and groups like the Nature Conservancy are working directly with farmers like Jake Lieb and Michelle Carr to try out different conservation techniques, show that they can work, because really they find that one farmer is going to find out from another farmer whether these tactics are working or not. Now, these financial incentives may push them over to try them themselves. That was contributor Zach Noth. Zach, thanks for being here. Thank you, Melba. That's all the time we have for this episode of Statewide. Thanks for being along with us. And join us next time. We'll have more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find us where you get your podcasts, also through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Our episodes can also be found through this station's website. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.